Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing outstanding. Pete, how are you today? Oh, I'm good. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views in the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have an episode on a topic that is relevant to everyone, which is work-life balance, specifically how to maintain your physical and mental health as a surgeon. So this is a topic that's important to everyone, but it is frequently overlooked, infrequently discussed. And I think it's a really constant struggle as an orthopedic surgeon and certainly one that I'm still working on. So I'm hoping to learn from our two guests. So first, from Kaiser Permanent in California, we have Dr. Ron Navarro. Ron, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks you guys for having me. Uh, I really enjoy the podcast and uh, um, I appreciate the invite tonight. And next next we have Dr. Gabe Horner from the University of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. Gabe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, really appreciate being here. So this topic is a real challenge to navigate. And I, I wanted us to start with kind of the less controversial, maybe less touchy-feely part, which is physical health. So I want each of you to kind of delve a little bit into what you think the keys are to maintaining your physical health when you're working as a busy academic surgeon. So uh, maybe, Ron, you could start out for us here. What are the keys? Uh, you know, I think I've personally taken the time to just carve out time for myself. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm always embarrassed to talk about some of the times I wake up to people, especially like Gabe on the East Coast, who seem like they get up at three or four in the morning to start their day. But I do um, Pilates or a reformer work at 6 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then I do cycling with my wife on Saturdays. And um, I'm a little bit longer in the tooth than I think everybody else on this uh, podcast. And uh, I have a young daughter who's 17. So I want to be around a long time. So I do it for me and I do it for my family. And it really, you know, a lot of people have talked about the benefits of exercise in terms of mental health, in terms of just feeling good and, and being able to sleep easy at night. And so that's the that's the short of it. What about you, Gabe? Is exercise also the key for you? What else would you add? Yeah, I think exercise is a huge component. Um, I think, uh, you know, being a little bit uh, younger uh, than Ron, uh, not too far removed from the, the busyness of when we were residents and it seemed like we were working nonstop. It was easy to kind of put your own health uh, sort of the wayside. And I definitely got away from it for a while and then um, started to get back into it. And now I, I make a point to really carve out, you know, some time in the afternoon when I get home from work to work out um, and just to kind of not think about anything work related and also, sometimes maybe do some of my best thinking while I'm working out where I'm not really feel like I have to sort of hone in on something. I uh, can just kind of turn some music on, um, get the uh, blood pumping a little bit and really um, allow myself to kind of just take care of my own bodies. But um, I think working out is a huge component to all of this. And Peter, I mean, I, I think you know, Gabe would say, and I think you all have seen it, there's a lot of other things people talk about and some of it I try to practice, but not all of it, but some things like uh, a strong, um, supportive family, um, showing gratitude toward others, being involved in charity. Those are kind of some of the other things and some of them, you know, and spirituality, however you define that. Some of those things can really help kind of gird you for the tough times too. 
Can I ask both of you, I've heard this a lot recently from surgeons at all stages in their career. They actually schedule time on their calendar, whether, you know, Outlook or Google or whatever they're using for workouts or yoga or meditation or whatever, but it's on their calendar so that their admins or their assistants know not to schedule anything into that so that they know that that's their time. Do you guys do that? Like, do you get, do you get as nuanced as doing it like that? Or is it just something that you do on these days? And if you miss it, you miss it, but this is what you do. Um, Ron, let's start with you. Any, any advice on that? Is that something you do so people don't bug you or reschedule you during those times? Yeah, I have a mindfulness app and it kind of dings and it kind of reminds me on its own without having to use my, my, my schedule or calendar. And so that gives me that kind of two to 10 minutes just to kind of breathe deeply and kind of get into like the space and time of the moment and hopefully nothing else. It sometimes gets interrupted. So I do do some scheduling to a degree with the help of an app. And then Gabe, how about you? Do you put in time specifically on your calendar so your team knows this is when I'm working out or is it just something that you do when you get done with the day? Um, it's typically something I get done uh, with at the end of the day. If, if it's a bigger thing uh, beyond just my normal, you know, weekly workout routines, um, you know, family events or whatnot, I make sure to put that in a calendar uh, that is shared with some of uh, the people on my team just to let them know that, hey, like, you know, there's a really important uh, thing that Dr. Horniff has to deal with and he's not going to be able to see patients at that time. Um, it's interesting though. I, I do like the idea of putting it in the calendar. I mean, I, I tend to live and die by my, my calendar. It's a joke in our, my, between me and my wife that if you didn't put it in the calendar, then nobody's responsible for it. But I think, you know, one of the hardest things, um, any of us struggle with is making the workout routine a habit. Um, and if it's something where you have to put it in the calendar to remind yourself, um, to, to make it a little bit more visual for you, I think that's important. I think it's also important to realize that, Hey, if you, uh, happen to miss it um, because, you know, inevitably some parts of our work do creep in from time to time to not get negative and down on that and think of it as some sort of failure because, I mean, that's not really the goal. The goal is to try to do it as often as you can, but you can't get frustrated with yourself when other things get in the way. But I do like that idea of kind of seeing it as part of your routine. Now let's talk sleep. We This is an interesting topic. We've have have had several surgeons on who openly admit that they don't sleep that much. And while our understanding on this topic has changed over the last decade or so, this uh, certainly used to be considered a, a, so to speak, badge of honor. If you didn't get any sleep or you only sleep three hours and you wake up at three and you work out and, and then you go to work and you write a paper and then you mentor and then you operate and then you see patients, et cetera. Um, but we know, you know, we know poor sleep habits, minimal sleep, causes a lot of health problems, um, even shortens the lifespan. So what are your guys' thoughts on sleep? How many hours do you actually get? And what do you think about it when people say, yeah, and I've been guilty of this. I, you know, I, I don't do it to brag. I, I actually do it more to complain when I only get the amount of sleep that I get. Um, and so I, I'm looking for advice here too. Gabe, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on sleep? And, and tell us how many hours do you typically get? So I am a, a huge proponent of sleep. Um, I will tell you that uh, I think um, for me, it's I'm not one of these people to go to bed at midnight. Um, I really try to get to sleep by, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at the latest and try to get somewhere between, you know, six to eight hours. Um, it's hard to do, especially with three young kids um, and trying to, 
you know, complete all their hobbies and everything and getting home at a decent time and trying to have dinner. But I think the, the most important thing is to have good sleep hygiene. I am a huge proponent of when it's time to go to bed, it is time to go to bed. Um, I don't, uh, and I think a lot of people are guilty of this. Um, I don't take my phone and, uh, play with it in the bed. I, I, you know, I do use it as my alarm clock. So it's on my nightstand, but I don't sit there and scroll for hours on the news or anything like that. I try not to watch any television when I go to bed. Um, I really make it, this is the time to, to shut everything off. And I think that is a huge thing. It's, it's just better for your sleep hygiene and helps you get better sleep. Ron, what are your thoughts? How many hours do you get and how do you, how do you advise us to have good sleep hygiene or, or is it not important? And, and is it okay to just have those three to four or five hours and call it a day? I um, am guilty of a lot of things. Gabe's, Gabe just described the scroll. I go to bed at midnight, but you know, I've really looked into this further. Interestingly, from a younger partner who's had uh, um, a family history of, of some diseases that are, are uh, somehow causally lack of sleep is causally related to some of the genetic diseases that he has not genetic but but other family members have had and so i got the auto sleep app and for a while i was tracking my sleep and the quality of sleep so i do have an alarm on my phone that tells me that i should go to bed at 10 which makes me usually get in bed by 11 so at least it dings and, and reminds me and for a time, I was measuring the the um, the deep sleep, the REM sleep, et cetera. And I, frankly, it's a little bit um, annoying to have like a, a wristwatch on or a, a chest a chest type device that kind of wraps around you to kind of measure these things so deeply. And um, I, it just gave me a really understanding of what my baseline measures were. And I mean, I just try to hope that I can get at least at least six hours. And in real fundamental terms, if I have dreams in my sleep, I know I'm in deeper parts of sleep. So I'm very happy in the mornings where I've had a dream, regardless of the content of the dream, but because I know I've got that most valuable sleep that is so beneficial, as Gabe was describing. Yeah, I, I love um, I love your approach, Gabe. I couldn't agree with you more that um, that there's that sleep hygiene is critical, and the, it's not just that. I think it's also avoidance of late night meals, you know, caffeine afternoon, like those. All those things actually, I think, do matter. Let's talk nutrition. So, you know, I one of the challenges I have, and I think everyone has this, is you're running behind in clinic. You know, the morning flows into the afternoon. You know, it's twelve forty-five. The afternoon patients are starting to show up. You're like, I gotta go eat lunch. I'm so hungry. Or, you know, you're running from clinic to the OR to do an add-on. So let's talk tricks for how you get a balanced diet in while running between clinic and the OR and all of the other responsibilities we have in our lives. Ron, how do you, how do you manage this? What are, the, what are the tricks for you so that you can continue to get the nutrition that you need and not just fill up on junk? I've got a great spouse that's able to kind of just you know keep really good foods in the house you know in in when i was younger i really would um think things like whole foods and in, in our area bristol farms really a little bit higher end uh um stores where you could do your shopping i thought it was all kind of a, a joke but organic foods less processed foods i try and bring those to work so I'm, I'm snacking on things which are really healthy which bring down those um uh, those cravings that that i would have and then fortunately in our system in kaiser permanente some of the foods that they serve they've gone to a um 
a place where they only order from more organic or or you know fresher ingredients types places it's not always the most flavor i love the old days when it was you know a lot more pizza and mexican food but we don't get that as much but i think it's better off from my health so i have some built-in um uh savers with uh you know uh family and uh the system that helped me what about you gabe what tips do you have in this regard um, I don't know if it's necessarily tips. Some of it is just habits that I've always had. I, for better or worse, I am not somebody to eat breakfast or lunch during the day. I know now it is considered, you know, intermittent fasting, uh, which is sort of the, the in vogue term of, of how you describe how I eat. But I, I just generally don't eat during the day. Uh, it was never really for a diet thing. It was just I found uh, that if I would eat something during the day, I, I tended to become sluggish afterwards. I really got that um, postprandial, uh, you know, tiredness that came with it. Um, during the day, I typically, you know, I will have a cup of coffee in the morning. Um, I'll usually drink, you know, water or some sort of sports drink during the day. Um, and then when I get home, you know, when I was a resident, I definitely was guilty of coming home and just sort of gorging myself. I would snack, I would eat dinner, then I would snack again. And, you know, as Ron mentioned, I, I you know, likewise, I have a great wife who, um, cooks decent meals. Um, and you know, I'm not just popping something into a microwave or anything like that. And I really have tried in, in, I say older, not that I'm old, but I'm 40 now. Um, and I try in my older years to try to avoid anything that comes in a box or a bag. Uh, that's sort of my way of kind of making sure that I'm not trying to eat anything that's highly processed. I mean, we're all guilty of, you know, the weekends and especially with having running my kids around. It's sometimes it's easier to just pick up something at, you know, a hockey rink or wherever they're playing sports or whatnot. But, um, I really do when I'm home, try to avoid, you know, opening the cabinets and, and diving into any snacks. Uh, Gabe, I got to say, I'm so impressed. You can get to dinner without a meal. I'm not a breakfast guy, but if I don't have my lunch, I'm pretty, I'm a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to, to do that. Some people are grazers and, and you know, just kind of snack on things all day. And, and like I said, when when people I work with say, oh, you're, what are you, intermittent fasting? It's just always been the way I've been. Um, I've been that, you know, when we took tests when we were younger, I never like woke up in the morning and had a big breakfast or anything. It's just I think we all run a little bit differently. I think it's just more important focusing on the, the types of foods that you eat, however you space them out during the day and you know, to what Ron said, anything that's highly processed, we know is just, it's bad for you in the long term. I really Ron, like, are you, are, are you saying Ron, that you get, or do you get hangry? Yes, <laughs> a little, <laughs> <laughs> but I do agree with Gabe that like, you know, because some people kind of beat me down for not having a big breakfast. I just never been that person. And so I think we're all made differently. So I, I, I hope that there's research that comes out that validates my viewpoint that, some people need that big breakfast. Some people like Gabe can get to dinner. Some people like me can just lunch is what kind of starts our nutritional day. But I did want to kind of riff on what Peter was talking about earlier with regard to sleep. You know, doing that eating late is also a, like a bad for sleep. So these things all are combined. And, you know, another thing, which we're not really talking about it per se, but drinking alcohol later at night affects the sleep. It can affect nutritional parameters. So I think everything is related to everything else, just like everything else in our life. It's just interesting how it all plays together. 
Yeah, I mean, I, we, we weren't, the alcohol thing I think is an important point that I wasn't going to touch on in this. I mean, I think that it's important to acknowledge when we talk about work-life balance and mental and physical health that, you know, you, you know that, 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 that there's an important component of avoidance of substance abuse within that. And I, that's, you know, it's hard in our society because there's so much normalization of a lot of that. But at the same time, it's also considered normal within social circumstances. And it's, I think there are definitely surgeons that fall into bad habits in, the, in that regard, and maybe it creeps up on them. I wanted to ask both of you, you know, both of you I know are people that are, you know, doing a good job of like maintaining a balance here. What other, what other tips do you have on physical health before we move on to mental health? I mean, if we, have I missed anything? What are the other things that you would, you, you think are important to mention in this regard? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go first. Um, yeah, so, uh, for me, uh, a really big personal health journey uh, occurred literally the day after I turned 40 years old in November. Um, I ended up finding a lump uh, and ended up being diagnosed with testicular cancer. Um, you know, I was very fortunate and sort of uh, it was very serendipitous the way I was able to uh, have it fully diagnosed and treated and ended up having surgery within a, a week or two and then ended up doing a round of chemotherapy. Um, for a month, uh, in the month that followed, um, the important thing, uh, that I think I, I garnered from all that was that we routinely do not take care of ourselves. We don't go to the doctors. Um, we will often write antibiotics for ourselves if we're having a cold or, you know, we, we, we just don't, we're constant creatures of go, go, go. And we, we focus on taking care of other patients. And I think, what I learned from that whole journey, uh, in addition to a lot of other things, was, you know, I, I make my regular doctor checkups now, uh, not just for, for the cancer that I went through and, and survived, but also, you know, I've gone ahead and I've made my regular normal checkups now being 40 years old, and I, I will plan to, you know, screen the, the normal screenings and all that. Um, and just because you work in a healthcare setting, it's very easy for you to just kind of put your own health to the wayside. And I think that's the most important thing is realizing that, you know, as busy as you are and as busy as your schedule is, you do need, and this is probably even more important than carving out time for working out. You do need to carve in your doctor's appointments and whether that's on an administrative day or whatnot, your dental appointments, your, you know, ophthalmology appointments, what have you to take care of yourself. Because, you know, ultimately if any part of your body fails, then your whole job as a surgeon and working with your hands and working with your mind can fail too. And Gabe, that's a really powerful story. It makes me, it reminds me, I have to go get my PSA check, but, um, and, and, and I really, I try to espouse and, and live by a lot of the things you just described in terms of, um, scheduling time for, for my own, um, health checks and our, our system once again supports that. To answer um, um, Peter's question, I also, th when COVID started, you know, my wife and I were, were like together a lot more during the days when it was really, everything was locked down. And I kind of felt like it was one of the best experiences of my life because we would go on daily walks and I got so much more walking time in other than the exercise that we were talking about earlier. It just built in physical activity and I also, you know, and I'm sure you all ascribe to the same thing. 
I take the stairs. I park far from the from where the door is, so I can get my steps in. Just that alone is really critical. And if you can maintain a lot of that, it also is that other physical way to kind of maintain uh, uh, yourself too. Just I just wanted to add that, Peter. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Gabe, your story. It's really. It's first off, I appreciate you sharing with us and with our listeners. I, I, the thing that I think it brings to light is that as surgeons, you know, it's, it's, there's definitely a sublimation of self into the job where you say, you know, I don't, my needs are not important. The needs of the impatient are more important than my needs. And, and, and I, I think that's true to an extent, but I, I, I think what you say is so important to say that if you, if you are yourself not of good health, you cannot do your, your job effectively. But we're not taught to think that way. Like, for instance, when I was a resident, and it's so funny, we talk about nutrition, and you mentioned not eating lunch. I remember as a resident that I never watched Tony Romeo eat anything other than a metrics bar. Like, I never watched the guy actually sit down and eat a meal. And I remember thinking, like, it's like the guy isn't human. You know I mean, it's like he's a shoulder surgery robot. And I remember thinking, like, isn't this admiral? Isn't this person I want to be? But I, I think what you say is so true that you we have to think of ourselves as human, and we have to care for ourselves, or we won't be able to do the jobs that obviously all of us would like to do. Um, do you, I wanted to ask you, Gabe, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a big experience. How, how do you approach other things differently? Like, has it affected your mental outlook? Has it affected the way that you manage your time? Like, how has this altered, you know, the rest of your life other than the fact that you go to doctor's appointments, the rest of us should be going to now? Um, I will tell you that it has changed me for the better. Um, and has made me a better person in a way that I is sometimes hard to express. Um, and my wife will often joke that I was so bullheaded and so worried about um, achieving things and comparing myself to peers and stuff like that, that it took something like that for me to kind of throttle back and be like, wow, you know, live in the moment, uh, try not to worry about stuff as much. I will tell you that as a as a shoulder surgeon, um, it's made me more compassionate um, to my patients in some regards. I, I will admit that sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating because, you know, sometimes we get patients where at the end of the day, I'm like, okay, you have a little bit of shoulder pain for a week and, you know, it's not the end of the world, but, you know, you have to sort of dial it back and realize it's a huge change for them. Um, I talk about it openly. Um, I have no problem talking about it openly. Um, it was weird at the beginning when it first happened, but then I felt that I've actually reached out to more people and maybe have inspired more people to take care of themselves by talking about it openly. Um, and patients really connect with that. Um, I've had a lot of patients who are also cancer survivors. And when I bring that up to them, I mean, it's an instant connection and, and I think it makes them feel like, okay, this doctor actually gets me and understands me. Um, and it's allowed me to take the pressure off myself. The things I used to worry about, I don't worry about. Um, we all have deadlines. We all have things we're trying to achieve. And I wouldn't say that now I'm a, a slacker of any sort, but I definitely, that work-life balance, um, it's not a balance anymore. It's, it's, it's definitely more life and family. Um, and I do, I think I do a good job of being a good surgeon, but I know that I do a much better job of being a father and a husband than I ever did. All right, let's talk a little bit about mental health and and you guys have touched on a little bit of this cuz it's all related, you know, physical, mental, emotional health, it's all related and the things we do to to try to stay healthy um certainly have 
you know, one has an impact on another. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit about mental health. First and foremost, um, wh- what do you guys think about mental health in general? Um, certainly there's been stigma with, with physicians um, admitting or acknowledging that maybe they they are dealing with mental health. There's sometimes stigma against patients with uh, mental health problems, et cetera. Um, what are your guys' approach? How do you tr- t- talk to residents and fellows about this, just about mental health in general? Ron, let's start with you. You know, I, I've like Gabe, I have personal uh, experience with this. I have uh, a family member who's had uh, some degree of mental health issues. Um, and uh, we, we really need to get more involved with that to the point of you know, getting, getting um, the person on meds and, and, and it's really stabilized their mental condition. And so it's really brought a lot more um, shared obviousness to me where um, I think, Rachel, as you were describing, a lot of us just tend to think, oh, that's only other people. It's not us. And it's only these certain numbers of patients and it's not us now it's, it's me, it's in my family. So it's brought uh, compassion. Like Gabe was saying that he had after his, um, his physical health um, malady, it's really changed my attitude. And so I, I want, I openly acknowledge it when I have, when I'm uh, teaching residents or medical students and I try to understand it in my colleagues, et cetera. And, and, and really, you know, some of the, some of the things that I found out in like delving deeper into it, you know, orthopedic surgeons tend to have a higher suicide rate than other medical health professionals, which was completely shocking to me, given that I always believed we're like carpenters, you know, we build it and move on. It's like a highly satisfying uh, job and usually highly satisfying jobs are the ones that, uh, um, engender the most um, mental benefits and health benefits. Uh, so uh, really shocking. Uh, so I just try to bring it outward and, and and face it head on and, you know, talk to people uh, about the problems so that, so that they know that they can feel comfortable with me sharing. And Gabe, let me follow up on that with another question for you about this. You know, I, I'm sure we're all variably active on social media and online forums, but on a lot of the physician-specific forums, whether it be for residents or fellows or attendings, and certainly relevant to all of our listeners on this podcast, there's a lot of people who ask how they should approach mental health when they're, you know, they're feeling depressed or feel like they might have depression or anxiety or OCD or some other mental health um, um, uh, disease, but they don't want to admit it due to disability insurance. They don't want it on their record for whatever reason. There is um, still, unfortunately, a stigma with a lot of this, particularly residents or even students may not want to disclose this, even if they need a day or a period of time off to deal with um, what's going on, just like they might for a physical condition, such, such as a fracture, or rotator cuff tear, or something like that. Um, they might need time away, but they don't want to face the stigma um, or potential negative repercussions or the unspoken things, the words that go on behind their backs and whatnot. Um, what are your thoughts on this? How do you approach your residents and fellows? Um, is this something that is openly discussed at your program? Or, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so our, our program does a really good job of um, allowing for the residents to have, you know, mental health days um, to try to keep an open forum. I, I would say that for me, um, 
one of the best personally i you know we all have given grand round lectures and whatnot one of the best lectures i feel that i have ever sort of put together um has nothing to do with shoulder surgery or anything like that it actually just talks about sort of my uh, experience as a young attending um and i really do focus the second half of that talk uh, talking about burnout um and i think we're all uh on this call and everybody who you know potentially is listening to this podcast um have gone through some level of burnout. And I think I the best way I explain it to patients or to the to residents is that it's not okay, I was all right. And then next thing you know, I'm I'm suicidal and needing to take medications. There's levels of burnout. Um, there's levels of feeling like you're just not doing a good job, feeling like you're having a bad week, feeling like all your patients are doing terrible. And I think recognizing that and realizing and, and explaining to the residents that we've all gone through it. And even the people that you know, we hold in such high regard as our societies and AOS and ASES, they have all gone through it. Uh, and maybe they've gone through it in a generation where it was less easy to talk about. And I think we're kind of on the precipice or, or maybe even a little bit beyond uh, the generation that it makes it okay to talk about it. And then I usually just tell them, you know, I think the most important thing is to reach out to somebody. Uh, and at the very least, I tell them, you know, you can always call me and talk about it. And there, it's, it's basically a no judgment call. Um, the one thing you touched upon that I don't think we talk about enough uh, in, in medicine, uh, you, you, you said social media. I think um, social media, uh, which has been proven time and time again uh, in the teenage population and a lot of the younger generation, um, is also sort of dangerous within the medical community. I think, you know, it's, it's a very strong uh, tool to, to get out the word about uh, lectures and, and different ideas, but I think it can also fall into a trap for people where, especially as a young surgeon, you're a new uh, attending and have finished, you, you start comparing yourself to seeing some of these other people who post some amazing cases that they've done or some amazing conference that they went to. And here you are trying to just struggle and get your start. I think we have to also be mindful of um, what social media influence does to younger minds who are just starting as surgeons, because it's very easy to look at someone's highlight film and compare your uh, your whole day and your whole week to that and not realize that, hey, they're not all having, you know, fantastic days either. Um, and I think, you know, that's been proven in other parts of society. And, and yet we haven't really touched upon it in medicine. But I, I do worry about that as well. So well said, Gabe. I mean, it's like the arms race right now. How many different apps can a person be on? <laughs> posting on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. It's like, wow, I don't know when they operate. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's it's a great tool and I do think it's the future. Um, and I think it's allowed us to communicate with each other and, and allow us to sort of easily talk to each other across the continent and across the world. But at the same time, I think we just have to be careful about it too, because, you know, there are people who sit in bed and scroll at night who don't have good sleep hygiene who are looking at some of these things and being like wow these people are amazing and you know i had an infection today and i'm not sure like how i'm going to manage this patient yeah it's such a it's interesting i i've um been doing a lot of research on social media and we're doing several survey studies from the medical student level on up to the attending level up through the patient level and it's funny. It's, it's social media is always, you know, you're wanting, you, you feel this pressure to keep up with the Joneses, you know, where you see exactly mm -hmm. like you said, Gabe, you see people doing all these fabulous things and you might be doing them as well, but you're not posting on them. Or you might've had a horrible day and you feel like you're the worst, world's worst surgeon or 
worst person or whatever it might be. And it's all based on things that we're seeing now on our phone that we never saw 20 years ago because it wasn't available. But then there's the other side, you know, for example, on, on Facebook, there's this women in orthopedics group, and there's a lot of different topics that get posted. But one of them are, are when patient, or, uh, uh, different surgeons post on difficult cases or complications or asking for advice. And it's a forum that prior to social media, we would never have had. And it's a place to get advice in kind of a non-judgmental way. So there's certainly pluses and minuses, but I think the risks of trying to keep up with the Joneses, trying to show that you're doing all these things at all times could potentially outweigh the benefits. And it'll be interesting to see where these kinds of things go into the future. And sorry to go off on that little tangent, but I, I think social media brings up a visceral response for most of us. We either love it or hate it, but probably nowhere in between. And it's it'll be interesting to see where this goes moving forward. Well, certainly. Um, so, I mean, this is this topic is so deep. I mean, we could talk, I'm sure, for an hour about social media alone and its pluses and minuses. I usually just tell the residents and the fellows that come to work with me that the, the issue with this job is that the highs are high and the lows are low. You know, and that if you execute a difficult surgery or you have a difficult pathology where the patient comes back with a good outcome, you, you will feel invincible. And and when things go wrong, it's it's hard not to feel culpable. And I think if you don't take it a little bit personally when things go wrong, you're probably not doing the job correctly. You know, what I mean you have to you have to let those things hit you so that you can try and get better. Let's move on to another important aspect of this, which I th think is relevant to many surgeons, but not everyone, obviously. But I want to talk about you know, the, Ron, you mentioned earlier how important your wife was for assisting you with your nutrition. Certainly, I think having a partner in this world makes a big difference. I wanted to ask both of you, you know, as a busy surgeon, it's very easy to let that fall by the wayside. Certainly, you know, there's many marriages that end in divorce among surgeons. And, you know, I, I think that can be really negative. So what, what for both of you have been your key to maintaining your relationship with your spouse? And how do you do this with you know, all the responsibilities that we have at work and, um, you know, and, and balancing that aspect of it. Maybe you could tell us about that, Ron. You've been through it for a lot of years. Yeah. Um, married over 30 years and, uh, just really have a, a, a wonderful, um, partner who has grown, uh, as I've grown and, uh, evolved. And, and I think it goes without saying, um, that it takes a lot of communication. We always joke that like, first being married is, is like nothing. It's when you have kids, you know, that you're, you're actually there. And you, when you start putting yourself second and, and doing something for a greater cause, and in our case, it was our children and, and growing a life together, that, that really has helped us. And as I was alluding to earlier, just when you get to spend more time with the person and, and I had also brought up spirituality, however that's defined for you. Some In some areas of that, it, it kind of is an expectation to maintain these relationships and not, you know, um, and, and things happen for people and some people grow apart. But uh, um, I, I had a really, you know, upbringing with a, a really um, expectant father who would never uh, be pleased if I you know, got into a situation where I was walking away from a relationship and he's passed away for like over 10 years now, but still really impactful for me. And so it's a combination of just growing with the, the person I'm with and um, being able to be open about uh, what's what's positive and negative, thinking about greater the greater good than just the two of our needs. 
and um, using spirituality to help me through, you know, the inevitable difficulties that we all have with relationships. What about you, Gabe? What would have been your keys here? And then, you know, you alluded earlier to, to your three children. You're, you know, like me, you're really in the thick of it here with the kids, with your kids. How would have been the keys for you also to, to, to be both a parent and a surgeon as well as, you know, a, a husband or a wife or a surgeon? Yeah, so um, I've been uh, married for 11 years now. Uh, in two days, it'll be 12 years. Um, we have uh, three boys. Um, I think the most important thing um, to a healthy marriage is the idea that there's going to be compromise. Um, and it's funny, my wife and I, we joke about it all the time, but kind of early when we were dating, um, you know, my wife is a school teacher. She's not in medicine. And I, you know, we sat down one night and I explained to her, I said, you know, this is not a normal job. Um, I said, you know, when I go through medical school and, and through residency, this is all going to be very stressful and very time consuming. And I, I kind of laid that out. I didn't want to surprise her and I wanted to be honest with her. And I, you know, um, obviously our relationship was much stronger than any stressors that that could put on. But I think it's important that um, when you develop a relationship with somebody as a physician, you, you have to let them know that this is not a normal, I can go home and, and completely turn off my phone. I mean, we've talked about all these things we try to do to sort of help us do that. But it, the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, our patients need us and there's things that we have to take and intend to, um, whether it's being on call or whether it's, you know, a, a patient calling with a complication or whatnot. And those aren't necessarily normal things that happen in other jobs where you can, you know, leave the office and, and that's it. And you don't have to deal with it till you get back there the next morning. So I think making sure that your partner understands that is probably the most important thing. Um, I agree with Ron hundred uh, percent. When you have kids, it changes the ball game entirely. Um, the level of selflessness that you have to, uh, uh, take on to to be a good parent um, and what it teaches you about how you can sort of tackle a challenge together uh, with your spouse is, is huge. Um, for me, um, I'm very involved and I try to be as involved as I can uh, to coach my kids sports in some capacity. Um, sometimes that's a head coach uh, situation. Sometimes it's assistant coach. Um, I will, you know, take time off, uh, when there's important things happening in their life with something with school, I'll take a half a day. And I really, I try to be there as much as I can for them. And then in the weekends, uh, what I typically will do is, you know, Sunday night is when I will reserve whatever time I needed to write a paper or go through notes or prepare for cases. But the rest of that weekend, when I get home Friday, barring that I'm not on call for the weekend, you know, my time is 100% dedicated to them and, and they know that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's, there's no textbook for it. Um, anybody will tell you, you can read a million books about being a good parent or a good spouse. And I think we all just kind of figure it out on our own. I think there's, you know, some highlights that you can do, but, um, you just, you just go about it and realize that now you're number two and your family's number one. And Gabe, I don't know, you know, you've said it so well. I say something simple to myself. Who's going to be at my funeral? I don't think any of you, oh, nice people, you won't be at my funeral. My my wife, if she's still alive, my kids, their kids. And so I just try and keep it real in terms of what's most important, what's right in front of me. Yeah, I think that is, um, that's a phrase I have certainly used is that, you know, 
Uh, there's people that we we see and we think, wow, they've done it all and everything. But um, I'm sure we've all heard the stories of some of those people who've done it at the sacrifice of their own family. And um, I don't know, for me, I, I agree 100%. I mean, the people you care about are the people that are going to care about you when you're gone. So, Well, let's get a little bit deeper with both of you as we're getting closer to the end of this podcast. Um, let's talk about the relationship each of you have with yourself, you know, particularly in the face of opposition that we're all regularly facing, be it from our hospital system, insurance companies, whatever it might be, stuff outside of work that's causing, you know, stress that maybe piles into work. Um, wh- how do you guys manage, you know, your relationship with yourself? How do you maintain a positive outlook? looking at growth, et cetera. It kind of ties in probably a lot of what we've already discussed, but maybe something we haven't hit on. Ron, let's start with you on this. Great question, Rachel. Wow, it's a tough one. Um, Try and have self-reflection in a general way to understand kind of what's really driving me um, in our system too. And I got a chance to, to, to do some other study on this. I try and hear my inner voice and see what's uh, being influenced by kind of my both conscious and unconscious biases and saying, wow, do I want to just respond right away to what might trigger me or make me angry or make me uh, frustrated or that like you say, the dwindling reimbursement or the way that the EHR help makes us feel or mergers in our systems and making us feel less in control of our own environments. And so I, I try to 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 understand what's triggering me and what's a, a more thoughtful way to go. And I, and I also, um, you know, I have uh, besides my my uh, wife, I have a twin brother who I kind of bounce a lot of things off of. He's in a completely different uh, work environment, but still has really climbed uh, the ladder of success, and I'm so proud of him. And so I use him as as another person to advise me. I know you talked about yourself, but I think in looking at ourselves, we sometimes need an outside uh, source to kind of uh, uh, level set us as to kind of what what's an emotional response to things and what's uh, like a, a, the, the appropriate or less reactionary response. And finally, I'll share something that I've learned, you know you know you have to some we learned in kaiser permanente this thing when when we're in these heated environments in in an administrative physician setting that we have to stop challenge and choose so when you feel like you're having a feeling of other uh, that something other than a positive or neutral you have to stop you have to kind of challenge yourself to kind of see why you're having that uh, visceral response and then choose the best best path forward you know it sounds fairly formulaic but after a while you start doing this and you start seeing that you're kind of being more thoughtful with responses that could lead you into um, times where you have an emotional response otherwise and i'm not always perfect at it (laughs) i'm a hispanic so i tend to be pretty visceral at times but but um it's really helped me to control the way i see the world and the way i approach things Gabe, what are what are your thoughts on this? Anything different or anything to add? And and one thing I'd love for for both you and Ron to maybe comment on is the topic of surgeon coaching. Um, different from a therapist, a psychologist, but there's been a lot of recent interest in surgeon coaching. Just like athletes and musicians and artists have coaches or teachers, um, the thought of a surgeon having a coach, not necessarily 
for techniques, but just how to be an effective physician and surgeon. Uh, Gabe, what are your thoughts just in terms of, you know, your personal growth and how you manage that in the face of what we all do every day? And then the thoughts on surgeon coaching. Um, I've gotten better with it. Uh, I'm not perfect at it by any means. I probably never will be. Um, one of the best advice pieces I've got from one of my mentors in fellowship, you know, I asked like, when, when does this start to feel easier? And uh, I remember him saying, you know, um, it really takes about five or six years until you feel like you can go to bed the night before an OR day and not really stress too much about it, get a good night's sleep and feel like you can walk in there the next day pretty confidently. And, and I feel like that just comes with experience. Um, so I think there is this natural progression in the beginning where you're, you're sort of uptight, you want to do everything perfectly. And then eventually as you get more cases under your belt and see more patients in the, in the office and uh, have more experience, you, you start to get a little bit more calm. Um, it's this weird thing too, where I, I don't want to say you, you develop apathy, but you start to develop thicker skin. Uh, and I think that's really important in allowing yourself to, you know, you, you, you obviously want to maintain this idea that you're going to do your best. You want to maintain this idea that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do what's right for my patient. But if something goes wrong or if a patient's unhappy, sure, it's going to bother you. And sure, that's probably the patient you're going to think of those, you know, you know what Pete said, the lows are the lows and they tend to override the highs of the highs. Um, but I think at the same time, you try not to take it as personally. Um, one of the things, and, and I joke about this with my wife all the time is that, you know, I have more of these self-help books on my shelf now than I ever did in my life. But I really have read a lot of stuff by this author, Ryan Holiday. He talks a lot about stoicism. And to what Ron was saying earlier, you know, it is normal in any situation and whether it's a fight or flight response or whatever, whether a case isn't going well or, you know, something's happening with your, your, your institution that you're not happy about to have these emotions kind of rile up inside you. And, you know, one of the things these books talk about is that it's okay to have these emotions. That's fine. You, you have to have those emotions, but you also have to realize that once the emotion kind of passes through you, you take a step back and you say, okay, well, why did I feel that way? And then you start to look at it a little bit more rationally. Uh, and I think I do a better job of that as well. Uh, in terms of surgeon coaching, um, I will often um, tell the residents that I do think it's good to have a, a mentor mentee program. Um, you don't have to necessarily connect with every surgeon that you work with, but it's good to find someone who has a few years above you uh, and, you know, latch onto them sort of as a, as a coach. Obviously the ASES has done a, a much better job of having programs like that built in, but even within your own institution, it's good to sort of find a like-minded individual who doesn't even necessarily need to be within your own division um, who, you know, you can lean on for, you know, basically just as a, a sort of a father figure within, within your practice. And I think that's a huge thing. Um, I also think again, um, trying to read into some of these, uh, self-help books are, are worth your time. Well, certainly a wealth of good advice there about a difficult thing, which is how do you, how do you keep, keep at it with a positive, positive mindset? You know, I, we've been kind of dancing around this, the whole podcast, which is that for you to, for you to have good physical and mental health, you have to really effectively manage your time, you know, and that's critical to making sure that you're actually spending time and effort towards the things that are important to you. So I wanted to ask both of you, what are your kind of top strategies for making sure that you're efficiently and wisely using your time, or at the very least using your time to accomplish the things you want to accomplish? 
You know, how do you make work fit into that tight box so that you have time after work on the weekend, like Gabe mentioned, to do all the things you want to do to maintain yourself, your family, your relationships? Gabe, what, what are your, what's your best advice here? Um, I do like the idea uh, that we talked about kind of at the top of the podcast um, of making sure that you have a schedule for things. Um, I have set up a research meeting uh, in the afternoon of Wednesdays um, once a month uh, with the residents to go over projects. Um, obviously, there's emails and communication between that, but that's sort of a block time set aside for that. Um, I have a routine as to when I prepare for my cases, like I was saying, Sunday evening. Um, and I think it's just if you if you allow yourself to set these blocks of time with what your expectations are to do them and don't let things kind of bleed into each other. It doesn't have you sitting at the kitchen table, looking at your phone and your kids wondering why you're not paying attention to them. It doesn't have you, you know, coming home from work. If you haven't completely completed everything you were supposed to do at work, you know, um, one of the best quotes I ever heard was, you know, clear your plate before you go home. Um, or clear your desk before you go home. You know, I try to get all my dictations done. I try to leave work at work. Um, and again, this, I'm not, I don't want people to think again, comparing yourself like, Oh, how, how's that even possible? I, I don't do it successfully every time, but I think trying to do that, it's a constant work in progress. What about you, Ron? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time and I know I've really effectively managed it. What, what's the best tip? Uh, yeah, you, Gabe said a lot of it, the, uh, um, the scheduling, um, the uh, parsing out the times to do the different elements that make up the, the, the work life so that you, you, to some degree, silo things and um, don't try to bleed them together. Uh, I've heard a lot more recently about multitasking and how it makes people so ineffective. So I've tried to limit my time to the matters at hand. I'm not uh, great at it all the time. I think on my big clinic days, I still try to bang out a ton of emails that are some sometimes administrative, sometimes about team care, sometimes about research. So it's, I, I'm, I'm guilty of not doing that, but I try and uh, uh, focus my time on the matter at hand as much as I can because of the the inefficiencies of multitasking. But the other thing too is I, I you know, and this just sounds so corny in, in uh, 20th century, but I'm a list maker. And I used to have little pieces of paper with uh, boxes that I would check and say, I got that done. But now I put it into my um, handheld. And so the moment something comes into my mind that I know I have to do, I put it on a list and, and some of the list um, apps I have, I can kind of move things up and down to to uh, daily say, what is the most important thing? So I knock out one or two of the big things because I never get through my lists. And and I have to admit to you, Peter and, and uh, Rachel and Gabe, I'm just a workaholic. I'm defined by my work. So I'm probably not the best at answering this question either. I, I do the same thing. I have a, you know, in my notes uh, app on my phone, I constantly have a list that I'm adding and it's never to zero. I, I, I joke that the day that it has nothing on there is probably the day I'm going to die because that means I've accomplished everything I need to accomplish. But right. Um, but I also I use that list also. Sometimes I put stupid things on there just to, you know, if I'm having a day where I feel like I'm not getting a lot done, I'll put a couple of simple things on there that I know I can scratch off and then at least makes you feel like you accomplished something. Kind of that same idea where they say, you know, if you make your bed every morning, you've started off the day accomplishing something. I think there's something to be said for that. And it just helps you with your psyche. 
totally agree. I think making your bed every morning that that uh, one speech that um, you know that I forget the name of the guy who gave that speech, but military guy who talked about it um, really resonates with me. And actually, funny enough, um, I I take a post-it note and keep it on kind of the mouse part of my laptop, and I I make a little mini checkbox and list my tasks, even though you could use your notes app, you could use anything electronic. I still physically write my to-do list um, for things I actually need to get done that I can't forget. And I like the satisfaction of checking that box, whatever it might be. So I, I totally agree. I think it's it's helpful to have whatever it is for your system, for all our listeners, mm-hmm. that makes you feel good about getting something done. Um, for me, it's physically writing it out, even though it, it you know, we have all these electronic things today. I, I like that handwritten note and the satisfaction of checking that box. And Rachel, I, I shamelessly admit I still have slips of paper all over the place, too, with check boxes. It's crazy. I mean, we can yeah. organize so easily electronically, but I, I just like the pieces of paper. I, I don't know why, but um, I don't know if I'll ever change. I also, you know, Peter was talking about, you know, one of our combined mentors, Tony Romeo at, at Rush, when we were both in residency. Another one of our mentors, Brian Cole, he, um, I don't know if he still does this, but I assume that he does, but his email in basket is kind of his to-do list. Like if there's emails in there, it means something needs to get done. And I use my in basket as the exact same thing. And when it starts getting really long where I can't scroll through, I know I'm way behind. And if I've ever cleared out my in basket, which happens maybe once a quarter, I feel really good for about five minutes till the next email comes in. Uh, but that's another strategy. Um, and and for those of anyone on the call or anyone listening who um, who has you know all those red numbers on their icons with like a million unread emails, that kind of stuff gives me actual anxiety. I, I hate having those things for time management. I like to be knowing that I have everything done. Just again, going off on a tangent. The challenge the challenge to that I have is that usually when someone else sends me an email. They're taking something from their to-do list and pushing it onto mine. So I often think of my my email inbox as everyone else's to-do list. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily my to-do list. So that's the, that's always been my challenge. But the one thing I think everyone said that I think is really important is, you know, as a, in the job we have, there are times where you really need to focus. You need to say, everything else is off my plate. I need to do this case. I need to see this patient. I need to write this paper. And the, the act of taking something you need to do and putting it on a list takes it out of your mental space because then you don't have to like one of my favorite quotes about this is Gabriel Gerson Marquez who said the man who has no memory can make one out of paper so if you if you put something on your list you no longer have to think about it you say okay I don't have to worry about this on that list when I look when I'm done with this and I can go back to the list I can think about that again I don't need to think about that right now it's so true it's a calming sort of thing that allows you to put it in a different space silo it off and then get back to it later. And Rachel, I used to do that, but boy, you know, before a vacation with the in, in basket in, in the uh, um, in the email, I would be at my office for like hours trying to get through everything. Now to what Gabe says, now I just say, you know what? That in basket is always going to have stuff I can't get to. And sometimes it just sounds terrible. If it's if it's low on my list, people will have to email me a second time if they really want me to get to it because the stuff that's really big, we're all going to get to. But but I, I I I love the idea and I do use it as a means by which to scan the day and say, oh, I've put a flag on these emails and I'll get to some of them. But I, there's no way I could get to all of them. So my red number is very large. 
I think for any residents listening to this this talk too, it, it, this speaks very strongly and very highly to the early years of being a resident where you're running the list, you're taking care of patients and you're organizing what is urgent, what is emergent, what can kind of go on the back burner. Um, and I often will tell the residents uh, in their first couple of years, it's not maybe as, as sexy as being in the OR doing a case, but there's a lot to be learned by being an intern and, and understanding how to sort of organize the task. And I think the last thing I would just say, you know, to all this is that the one common theme amongst all of us, and I think this is what people need to do to sort of be easier on themselves is realize that we're, there's nobody here who's an expert on this and we're all trying to get better at it. And we found some things at work and there's some things that we still need to work on. And I don't think anybody's going to ever perfect this. I don't know anyone who has. Amen. Well, on that note, um, I wanted to thank both of you guys for coming on. I mean, this has been just a tour de force, a wealth of great advice. Um, and I think anyone listening to it can find a couple of things that they can use to make themselves healthier physically and mentally um, and try and figure out how to avoid burnout and, you know, be just, again, a better spouse, a better parent, a better surgeon in the long run. So thank you both for coming on and spending your time. Um, and um, we really appreciate it. Um, it's, I think it'd be really valuable for listeners. Thank you, Peter and Rachel. Appreciate the time. Gabe, awesome to, to be with you. Peter, Rachel, uh, awesome as always. And Ron, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you both so much for for giving your time. And I bet we could go on for another hour or two about this topic and many other related topics. And thank you both for sharing your personal stories and anecdotes. Um, could I mean this is so valuable, and I can't wait to re-listen to this. Um, you know, back when 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 it gets released. That is unfortunately all the time we have for this podcast. Because again, we could go on and on. We want to thank our guests so much for spending the time with us. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.